Hey, homebodies. This is Seth from the Introvert City Podcast. In this episode with David Garlock, we will be discussing subjects such as childhood trauma, sexual abuse, and the prison system. Please be advised and enjoy our conversation. Hey, what's up, homebodies? How are we doing today? We're back. I say that every single week. I say, we're back. You do say that a lot. You do say that very much. You do say that very much. So how was your week? I had a good week. Um, I don't really want to do small talk today. I'm forcing myself to. (laughs) I'm so excited for today's episode, you guys. I'm very excited, too. I actually told a lot of people about this episode. Yeah. Um, Yeah, in particular, my mom, she texted us before. Um, I'm I'm excited. Yep. I'm very excited. what are your thoughts? You're excited as well? I'm super excited. So should we just like cut right to it? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So we have a guest on today. Mm-hmm. And the first time that I met this person was when he came to speak at my university. Mm-hmm. And um, he was, so my dad is a professor and he was speaking to my dad's class, which was a criminal justice class about his experience, um, his childhood life, his adulthood life. Um, and I'm like trying so hard not to give everything away. And mm. ever since I met him, we actually had a really interesting interaction where I saw him sitting and I was talking to someone else about this podcast and he overheard it and we had, we just sparked conversation and I ended up inviting him to come on. She texted me right away. Yeah, I did. Like, I was like, just, I just met talk. this guy who is apparently really famous and I didn't know. <laughs> He's laughing. <laughs> All right. So without any further ado, I'm going to unmute him. This is Mr. David Garlock. He now goes around to universities all across America to speak about his experience of trauma to triumph. Mm-hmm. Hello, Mr. Garlock. Welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. It was definitely an uh, experience meeting you and yeah. just the conversation and then finding out that your father was one of the co-teachers of the class with Dr. Churchville it was amazing and mm-hmm. that I've met your father numerous times, you know, and so... I always believe that everything happens for a reason and every conversation that we have is ordained. That's really well said. Uh, I wanted to give a quick word that I think will tie into. Uh, it's from the book of Colossians, which is like my third favorite book of the Bible, um, which says in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 14, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you ha- has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Very good, good application verse. for today. All right. So, Mr. Garlock, um, for our first question today, we want to ask, um, without giving away your testimony just yet, how is your spiritual and mental health and what place are you in in your life right now? I mean, I'm actually in a really good place as far as mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, my wife and I, we have been married for over seven years. Oh, nice. We have a two-year-old son named Guy Joshua, and he's just such a blessing. You know, he's added so much to our life. Uh, the church that we go to is really amazing. Um, it's Freedom Life Church and uh, Christiana. They are so supportive and welcoming mm-hmm. of my wife and me and our family. And it's amazing when you have a church that doesn't look at you or your background. They just Mm -hmm. look at you as who you are. You know, it's kind of like when we're told in the Bible that we're to be clothed with Christ. Mm -hmm. That's who they see. They see Jesus in me. They don't see all of my past and all the filthy rags that I have underneath the coat of Christ. Praise God. That's so important. And there's not enough churches doing that. Like if they find out about your past, I've listened to so many stories of churches finding out about people's past and then just not accepting them. And it's really sad because that is the exact opposite of what Christ calls us to do. Yeah. uh, The the first church that I attended in Montgomery, Alabama, was uh, Fresh Anointing House of Worship. It was predominantly black church. The reason I went there is because of the prison ministry that they had. And my first Sunday, I had been out of prison six days. And I went in, I talked to one of the ushers. I was like, hey, is there anybody here from the prison ministry? There's like, there's no one here from the men's prison ministry, but there's somebody from the women's prison ministry. So I met her, shared that I just got out of prison and I'm here because of the prison ministry. They're like, can we take you up and introduce you to Pastor Kimmy? So Pastor Kimmy was Bishop Kyle's wife. Mm 
So I talked to Pastor Kimmy, share my story. She's like, can I take you back and introduce you to Bishop Kyle? I'm like, sure. And everybody at the church would always tell me, they're like, you never see Bishop Kyle before service. And I'm like, favor. So I go (laughs) back there and I talk to him. He's like, hey, can I share your story from the pulpit? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I go back. I'm worshiping, praising God. He goes up. He's like, can David Garlock please come up here? I'm thinking, okay, you did not tell me that. You said, can I share? (laughs) So here I am out of prison six days, called up to the the stage. And so I just talk about, you know, my experience in prison, you know, the ministry, how it impacted my life. He's like, hey, can I pray for anything? I'm like, yeah, you know, a job and a car. He's like, how about a wife? I'm like, one of those wouldn't be bad. Um, But what was amazing is like, so when I got married to my wife, Jane, her brother-in-law gave me his car. So I got the wife in the car as a joint deal. But when I walked down from that stage, there was about six people that came up to me and shook my hand and they had money in their pocket. I'm like, okay, this is really weird, but okay, thank you. They gave me $239 that day. And the first bill that I opened up was a $100 bill. I'm like, who comes to church in 2013 with a $100 bill in their pocket? Mm. Mm. So there are still churches that are out there that are living out the Christian life, you know, that are receiving people, loving on people, you know, and that's really what it's about, you know, just love, loving our brothers and our sisters. Mm. Mm. Oh, wow. That's great. That's, that's very crazy. well said. The way that's, God. that's incredible. Yeah. It, it, it can be hard to sometimes, especially when you're church hunting and in a situation like that, where, you know, you don't really have a church that you can cling to. It can be very hard to do that. But for like, that was your first day, right? For your first day, you're going in and you're basically preaching on the stage. That's a lot. That's crazy. And but for the fact that people were able, you were able to be accepted there and find a congregation that you could be with and that you could love on and that could love on you. That's an amazing. That's and amazing. props to you for mm-hmm. going Honesty. up there and speaking wow. with no preparation. I'm 100 percent extroverted, so I mean, I love That's people good. and I love talking. You know, so it's great. Mm. See, we have an Our extrovert first on extrovert on introverts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're gonna get into your testimony, essentially, and your story. So, when you first came to speak to the criminal justice class that you that I had attended and I saw you, you asked a question to the audience to start out your speech. You said, "Just looking at me, just observing me, what crime do you think I went to prison for?" And you got reactions all across the board. How did those reactions affect you or do they not affect you anymore i mean they they don't affect me anymore um i really do that as a way to change the narrative because um i'd say between 90 to 95 percent of people when they look at me they see a white guy that is dressed really sharply earrings nice wedding band chelsea boots yes and they're gonna be like wow okay this guy did something with money he's uh committed fraud money laundering something like that and so it's definitely something to change the conversation um Mm. and i use it in that way because most of the times people aren't going to associate me with a violent offense And, and these are because of the stereotypes that society has taught us through tv shows through movies through music Mm -hmm. and the way we view people who have committed offenses um when i spoke at LaSalle university in 2017 the first time i ever spoke anywhere it was so uh, looking back on it now i it's so rough you know but it was amazing opportunity and i asked the students like what were they expecting there was only one white person in this class. So there mm-hmm. were 20 blacks, 10 Latinos, and one white person. And there was this Latina woman raised her hand up. She was sitting in the back of the class. She's like, we were expecting somebody who was black or brown skin, tatted up, or went to prison for drugs. Wow. But then she said, our professor brought in this white dude that went to prison <laughs> for murder. <laughs> 
No, yeah, I remember when you came to the school uh, all, and everyone who raised their hand, they either said fraud or robbery. I remember. And, I mean, that's one thing that I love doing. I mean, I've spoken in five federal prisons, and it's the same thing. The folks in the federal prison all thought I went to prison for a fraud. Mm. because even for people that are incarcerated, that is a, th- a mindset that they have too, you know? Right. And so I, I love using that as a way to get people to think and then also to prepare them for my story because it's kind of a shock factor because it's like, oh, snap. This person just said they went to prison for murder. Why? Mm. What did they do? What happened? You know, because... I would have never guessed that. I would have never imagined that. Yeah, you probably get some people tensing up, people some tensing up in the, in the classroom when yeah, you hear that. Yeah, it was that. tense. That's, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it, it yeah. definitely is, you know, but once I'm able to just begin to walk them through th- what led up to the murder, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it allows people to be more open to what I'm saying, you know, and it's not like I'm coming out and just saying I'm this homicidal, crazy mm. maniac that just went out and said, oh, I feel like killing somebody today. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And really, when you think about it, that's just a very small percentage of people who've committed a murder. Mm. You know, a lot of individuals are pushed to a certain a certain point where they commit an offense. You know, especially when you think about a lot of women that commit murder, a lot of that is individuals in domestic violence or sexual abuse situations where they're trying to escape their abuse. Mm. Mm. So talking about now your, your story, where does that begin? Can you describe your childhood, your prison experience, how it all links together? Just start wherever you're comfortable. Well, I mean, really growing up, um, we dealt, we, we grew up in a very dysfunctional family uh, my parents really didn't have the skills to raise us. Uh, my dad was in Vietnam, PTSD, alcoholic. Um, one of my first memories, I was five or six, and he was chasing my mother around with a hacksaw blade, threatening to kill her and my sister. Oh, my, oh my and gosh. So those are some of my earliest memories of the family. Uh, my sister was kicked out of the house um, when she was 12 years old. A little bit after that, my parents got divorced. Um, there was so much uh, a, a verbal abuse between my parents. It was always sad. I was the one who would always be there trying to comfort my mom. I, if she was crying, I'd jump on her bed with her and just comfort her and mm. cry with her and um, just try to console her. And so my parents got divorced when I was nine years old. My brother was 12, and our mom got custody for us for about three months. And um, <laughs> that was probably thinking about it as a, a kid that age. It was a perfect life because every morning my mom would ask us, do you want to go to school? As a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, you're going to say no. <laughs> and so we didn't go to school. So I think we went to school maybe nine times during that three-month period. Wow. So my brother and I were at home watching HBO, playing Nintendo, running around the apartment complex, and um, she lost custody of us, and we stayed with my uncle and aunt for about six months, and then our dad got custody of us again, and Mm. really it was our grandma who was raising us because we were living in our grandmother's basement there, and my brother got involved with drugs and alcohol and got kicked out of the house too. And really, him getting kicked out of the house changed the trajectory of both of our lives because when he was in this group home there in Seattle, a gentleman had just gotten out of prison in South Carolina, moved to Washington, befriended the person who was running the home, and started sexually molesting my brother. Mm -hmm. Um, That went on for a couple months. He forced him out of the home and into his home and... Probably like three months after that, he took my brother down to California where my mom had met a gentleman and they got married and talked them into coming back up to Washington. And that was just so he could have access to me. And so both my brother and I were sexually abused for about eight years, you know. And and to clarify, it, you said this is your mom's new husband? or this No, this was a non-family member. Okay. So this gentleman had just gotten out of prison in South Carolina and moved to Washington. Right. 
they talked my mom and stepdad into moving to Washington because he knew that the only way he could have access to me is if my mom was around. And that would be the reason I want to go see my mom because I hadn't seen her in two months. Mm. So the first time I saw my mom in two years, the abuse began with me and that happened when I was 11. And so this abuse went on and um, probably when 17, 18, it became more abusive. Um, He had tried to kill my brother and me numerous times. And we, at 19, and my brother was 22, we made the irrational decision to take his life. And so that's something that I always have to live with and deal with, you know, the fact that we had taken somebody's life. Uh, I wish it hadn't happened, but at that moment, we felt this was the only way out of the situation. And so it took him four months to find the body. And that was a really hard time because I was living with the fact that I had taken somebody's life and I stayed drunk. I stayed high and I stayed drunk and high just to get through that experience. And then uh, October 29th, 1999, I was arrested. I just turned 20 years old and I was looking at a murder charge. And in Alabama, I thought I was going to get the death penalty. I thought I was going to get life without parole. And so um, November 1st, 1999, I was taken over for questioning sat in a room for seven hours by myself. And after that time, I had a lot of time to think about the abuse, think about the murder, and I confessed to the murder. Mm. And that was such a weight that was taken off my chest. And um, I did a TEDx in 2021, and I talk about um, these masks that I created to get through the trauma. And it was a way that I survived. And me confessing to the crime was me being able to start taking these masks off. And then the thing that really changed the whole trajectory of my life happened next. The detective is taking me back to the county jail. I'm asking the detective, am I going to get the death penalty? Am I going to get life without parole? And he turns to me and he asks me, he's like, do you believe in God? I'm thinking, I'm not studying God right now. What's going to happen to me? Am I going to get the death penalty? Am I going to get life without parole? He's like, do you believe in God? I'm like, death penalty, life without parole. He's like, do you believe in God? (laughs) And so finally, I'm talking about, I think we went back and forth like four or five times. And finally, I'm like, yeah, I believe in God. He's like, you need to seek him now. And so when I got back to the county jail, I asked for a Bible. They gave me a little New Testament Bible. I mean, most people would go to John or Romans or Matthew. I went to Revelations. I went to the end of the oh book <laughs> because, I mean, I grew up in the church. You know, I knew what to say, how to say it. I was that good Sunday school boy, you know, mm-hmm. that had everything memorized. You know, my favorite verse was Jesus wept, you know. <laughs> um, so there I am. I'm reading Revelations. <clears throat> I get to Revelations 3.20 that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and allows me to come in, I will come in and sup with them. And immediately I just cried out to God. I'm like, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I need you. And instantaneously this peace and joy came over me. Here I am in my six by nine cell just praising and worshiping God. And I'm just really glad that there was no correction officers that came around right then. Because I might have put been put in a padded cell because they're like, this dude's here for Marty. He gone crazy, you know? <laughs> mm. Wow. wow. Uh, first off, thank you for that. Thank you for telling us all that. That's uh, We appreciate you being so honest and straightforward and transparent about that. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you for that. Um, we wanted to ask, though, uh, as you think about the times you were in prison, um, what do you think were your harshest struggles, harshest obstacles, and what points did you feel were your lowest and how did you overcome them? And maybe were there people you met that helped you overcome those uh, issues? Well, I, <clears throat> I'd say one of the hardest things was losing my parents. So my brother and I, we were in the county jail. We were in the same cell and we had gotten a letter from our mother and she wanted us to tell her what happened to her, to happened to us and why we had committed this murder. So we sat down one Friday night. We spent the whole weekend writing her a letter. Mm. Now, when I write, it's really tiny. So you know how some people, they have like big letters. Mm -hmm. Mine is tiny. You would think that 
I typed it on a printer because that's how tiny I, I write. And so we wrote her a 30-page letter front and back. Oh, my goodness. Wow. From when the abuse began with my brother to the night of the murder. And Question. Did she know when the abuse was happening? Um, <clears throat> when she wrote back, she said she thought things were happening. She really didn't know for sure. And she was blaming herself for never asking and never trying to do something about it. And, I mean, I don't know if she asked if we would have told her because this gentleman had threatened to kill us and our family if we ever told anybody. Mm -hmm. So we had been living with this constant fear for years upon years, knowing that he would actually do it. Um, And so we actually didn't hear back from her for about two and a half months and in august i think it was like the second week of august uh they have mail call um they came around about two o'clock that day and i got this letter i got a couple bible studies which i got pretty much every day and then i got this letter and i didn't recognize the handwriting and because it was like some really bad scribble scrabble I thought a doctor was writing me but then I opened it up and there was this really short note from my stepdad saying that our mom had died of a massive heart attack Wow! while she was writing us so my letter was totally completed and my brother's letter was halfway through and that's when she passed away and she was apologizing for not knowing what's going on and not doing anything about it. And um, that was really hard, you know, because I will probably about a year, I blame myself for her death, mm. thinking that if we had never written her, maybe she wouldn't have died. Um, if we didn't tell her everything, maybe that could have done something. And so... It was this like internal struggle, you know, uh, and desire to say, why did we do this, you know? And then just getting to that point where I reconciled with God and knew that it was just her time, you know, and really getting to where the, the scripture talks, you know, about like all of our days are planned by him. And so really just knowing that this was her life, you know, and it was her time and I'll see her again, you know, so that was definitely comforting. And there were some people in the county jail that comforted us and we were able to actually have a conversation with our dad about it, you know, so that was definitely nice. And I'd say the the second little point was uh, when I found out my dad was in a coma so one thing you really do not want to have happen when you're in prison is to be called to the chapel. Because 95% of the times, if you're called to the chapel, somebody in your family is dying. Mm. Um, there are some aspects, you know, where you could have like a special visit or you could have gotten some type of special chapel mail. But most of the times, if you're called to the chapel, um, especially if it's over the intercom, something like that, it's not good. Mm-hmm. So I walked in and, um, this was 2010. Um, I walked in and the, uh, chaplain called me into his office and he told me that, see, that he had just gotten a call from my dad's girlfriend at that point saying that he was in a coma. And so that was something that really just took me back. You know, um, he had been dealing with cancer for like 18 years. And when I was 12 years old, we were told, oh, your dad has six months to live. Six months later, they're like, he has six months to live. And so after two years, we're like, okay, we're not going to listen to anything you're saying. You know, we're we're just praying and we're believing God. Um, And so... That really just hit me because, I mean, within the last years, you know, my mom passed away in 2000, my grandma passed away in 2008, my sister in 2009, and then here's my dad. 
here it is. I go back to the dorm and one of my friends is there. His name's his nickname's Q. His name's Quentin. And just a couple of days previously, he had lost his nephew. So I was able to pray with him and comfort him, you know, during his loss. And he saw me like tore up. And so he's like, hey, D, what's up? So I go over there and I tell him, you know, and he prays with me, you know, and it just reminded me so much about like Second Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, where it talks about the way that God is all a God of comfort and tender mercies and he comforts us so we can comfort others. And mm-hmm. so here I comforted him a couple of days earlier and here he is comforting me and then they call count. And so at count time, you have to go sit on your bed. So I'm on my bed and I'm praying. I'm like, God, you know, I need you right now. So God just puts on my spirit to go to the story of David and Bathsheba. Mm. So I open up to the story of David and Bathsheba and I get to the point where the child that they had is dying. And David is praying and fasting. Didn't shave, didn't do anything for that seven day period. And then he sees his servants like walking around on eggshells and he figures out that the child is dead. So David goes and shaves and gets up and is ready to go. And the servant's like, what are you doing, David? He's like, I saw that you guys are up and about. So I figured that the child was dead. They're like, yes, we didn't want to come tell you. He's like, well, when the child was still alive, I was praying and believing that God could heal the child. But now that the child is dead, I know that I'll say, see him again and that was just so much comfort you know and seven days after i told that he was in a coma he passed away and it was that same length of time that david's child lived and wow it just provided so much comfort you know and just the way that of all the stories i could have been taken to that was the one that god led me to to provide that comfort in that moment that's incredible i wanted to ask um did you uh, did you ever get a sense of feeling trapped? Of course, you were actually, tra- you know, you're in, a, in the prison, but did you ever get a like mental and emotional sense of being trapped because now, you know, your parents are gone and your grandmother is gone and, you know, you're you're with your brother, but, you know, once you don't, you don't really have that many connections outside, people calling you, did you feel trapped or did you feel disconnected and isolated? No, actually, I felt the opposite, you know, because I would always tell people that, um, while I was incarcerated, I was the freest I'd been up to that point because mentally I was free, emotionally I was free, spiritually I was free. The only um, locked up I was was physically, you know. I couldn't go out wherever I wanted. But um, I had been in so many prisons before then that the abuse had created and then the the addiction of to drugs, you know, and then really the thought process of that four months of where I committed a murder. So I had created all these different prisons for myself. And actually in prison, that's where I became free. And it was so amazing, you know, because you're not supposed to be joyful in prison, but I always love Philippians because if you think about Philippians, Paul wrote the book of Philippians from prison. It is considered and called the happiest book of the Bible Mm. because there's 17 different variations of the word joy. Mm. So if you have Paul who's in prison writing about joy, how couldn't I experience that same joy? And (laughs) I always think about this one gentleman in prison who actually was a chapel worker. He got mad at me one day. I had probably been locked up eight years. He got mad at me. He's like, David, why are you so happy? You're walking around here laughing, joking around, having a good time. You're in prison. Mm. You have potentially 17 more years to serve. I'm thinking to myself, I got Jesus. I I got joy. Mm. Why don't want to walk around here and be like this bitter beer face person? Like, don't talk to me, (laughs) you know? And it's like, I always thought it's like, if I go up to somebody and I tell them, hi, I'm David. Do you want to come to church to with me tonight? It's such a great time. 
who's going to want to go to church with me? No, you're me? so right. Yeah. But if I come up to you and I'm like, man, Corinna, Seth, man, we're going to have a great time at church. It's awesome. It's amazing. God's there. His pre- You're going to be like, it's a good wow, mood. we need to go. Let's let's go. Let's do this thing, you know? Yeah. And that was my whole mentality. It's like, okay, I want people to see something different in me. I don't want them to just to view me and look at me as everybody else, you know? And you know, that's really that's really great that you mentioned how even in prison you're still showing others like uh, kindness and still trying to give other people like the word while you're in there. Yeah. One of my favorite verses at the end of Colossians, I bring this up a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Paul says, uh, "Remember my chains, grace be with you," I think it's such a great verse, and I feel like that embodies it because you're actively in, you know, you're you're in carcer- you're incarcerated, you're in there, and but you're still actively seeking the Lord and pushing onto the other people you see there. I think that's incredible. Yeah. One thing that's really amazing is I, I have a lot of friends on Facebook that I've done time with in prison and they, whenever they got out or they connected with me on Facebook, they'd always, they're like, David, thank you for being such an encouragement to me. And just the way that you pushed me and just the words you spoke to me, you know? And um, <clears throat> I always tell people there's, three types of people that we need in life. We need a Paul, we need a Timothy, and we need a Barnabas. So Paul is the person who's our mentor. They're the person that's pouring into us, that is speaking life into us, that is showing us the leadership skills that we need to take into life. The Timothy are the people that God places in our life who we get to mentor, who we get to walk with, who we get to lead to become what God's created them to be. But the Barnabas, do you guys know what the name Barnabas means? Nope. No. Son (laughs) of encouragement. So Barnabas was somebody who always encouraged people. He would encourage Paul, you know, when people didn't believe that Paul had changed, Barnabas was there to tell the people like, yo, (laughs) Paul has changed. You know, you need to listen to him. He's not the person He's not Saul of Tarsus who was going around here killing folks. He's Paul, a man who had this amazing interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Y'all need to listen to him. And so we all need that. You know, we need people in our lives who are encouraging us, who are building us up and telling us, you know, you can do this. You know, whatever you put your mind to, you can achieve. And that's something that a lot of people that are in prison have never had in their life. They've always been told they're they're worthless, they're useless, worthless, useless. They're never going to amount to anything. Mm. You're going to get out of prison, but you're going to come right back. But they need people, and I think really one of the big areas the church needs to get up is mentorship to those people that are coming out of prison. Don't just invite them to sit on your pew. Invite them to get involved and place people to mentor them, to encourage them, to walk with them. It's really well said. Mm-hmm. So speaking about life in prison, I don't know if you mentioned this. Can you talk about whether or not you got a chance for parole? And then whenever you're finished talking about that, this is a bigger question. In what ways do you feel like the prison system is corrupt? Or did you not have an experience with a corrupt prison, do you feel like it's actually righteous punishment? So first talk about getting parole, and then you can look at the bigger question. So, I mean, I made parole in 2013. I came up in 2009, and they set me off uh, because the attorney general was trying to get reelected, and so anybody with any type of violent offense or sexual offense was being set off. Um, made uh, Went up for parole February 2013, and got released on April 1st, 2013. So April Fool's Day. Hmm. There were actually two ushers that wanted to joke around. And they're like, Garlock, your paperwork hasn't come in. You can't go home. Oh, no. That would oh not God, be funny. Not, not the time. It was not funny. <laughs> I told him, I'm like, y'all know I like to joke around and have fun. But my freedom is not something I want to joke around mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. They went on with this for 10 minutes. Oh, man. Oh, so they actually gave you the joke. I thought you said they didn't do that. No, they were. They, they were pushing it. Like, oh, my were, God. Put, they, they pushed this like for that. 10 minutes. Oh, my gosh, man. And then finally, they're like, okay, you can leave. I'm I'm thinking as I'm walking out, I'm like, who in the world is going to joke around about somebody's freedom? Oh, I would be so I'm mad. like, that is not cool. 
So, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing experience. And uh, just another God thing about that day is we got out. Um, so I got out that morning. We drove the three and a half hours from Hamilton, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama. And so we were going to the, the folks that took me down were um, people that worked with Equal Justice Initiative. Um, and so they're like, hey, do you want to go to meet in three? I'm like, who do you want to meet in three? But <laughs> down south, there's this big thing where you get like one meet and three sides. So I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds good. So we go to this restaurant. Um, it's called Isaiah's. It was closed. They close on Sundays and Mondays. So Isaiah's wife was actually outside the restaurant sweeping. There was another couple that pulled up too, and they were out and we were out. We're all like, are y'all open? They're like, we're closed on Mondays, but come on in. Oh, nice. That's so nice. So we went in, had food. It was so great. I got barbecue ribs. I got Fried okra, mac and cheese, collard greens, and cornbread. Stop it. You know I'm hungry. hungry. You're making me hungry. I was at home. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is great. Two weeks later, I see Isaiah at the church that I attend, Fresh Anointing House of Worship. He's one of the um, leaders of the church. And I'm like, wow, this is definitely a God thing here that – he opened up his doors for us, and I'm going to the same church as him. Yeah. It was mm. incredible. Now your question as far as corruptness and prisons. Yes, prisons are very corrupt. I mean, we'd have to do like 10 episodes. I'm sure. If we really wanted to go into it. I mean, just thinking about like the drug use in prisons. Um the higher ups in prisons are always saying, oh, it's visitors that are bringing the contraband in. It's visitors that are bringing the cell phones and the drugs and everything. Yeah, no. It's the correction mm. officers that are bringing everything really? in. Really? Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. So just like COVID got into prisons through correctional staff, that's the same way contraband is. Oh, man. Uh, when I was incarcerated, you could pay a corrections officer $500 for them to bring in a cell phone. Oh my now, gosh. That's not for the actual cell phone. Your family would have to pay for the cell phone, but that's just for them to bring it into you. There was at one of the prisons I was at, I saw one of the men walking around with a fifth of vodka, the actual bottle. Yeah. Seth. Okay. You guys can't see our faces, but like our jaws drop. I didn't, Okay, so I guess I don't know much about prison. I don't either. So this might be so stupid to ask, but the corrections officers, it seems like they don't care about your like the incarcerated people's growth Uh, because it's like they're giving you these things for money. Sometimes some of them do. Um, There's others, you know, that. Just look at it as another way to supplement their income. You know, uh, there's a lot of correction officers that are just like the people that are incarcerated. They're just wearing the blue or whatever color. Could they that, get in trouble for that? Like people yeah, love if, them. Yeah, I mean, you can you can Google like in Huntsville, Alabama, where Limestone Correctional Facility is. They just recently arrested between four to six former corrections officers for different contraband. So, yes, you can. Interesting. At times, they might just let them uh, resign on the spot instead of filing charges, depending on what they're bringing in. It's a money source for the folks in blue. Wow. Now, you, you asked this for as, like, some of the COs, you know, wanting to see people change. I'm actually friends with about – six or eight correction officers and nurses that I did time with at one of my prison at one of the prisons I was at. So yeah, there are some that actually want to see you change that want to see you better yourself, you know, but then there's others that um, will actually put a pool on you. Like when you, when I got out of prison, they made wagers to see how quickly I would end up back in prison. Oh my gosh. Mm. 
the longest that some people put was six months. And in less than two months, I will celebrate a decade out of prison. Praise God. Wow. Amazing. Like, mm. Yeah. And I know there's so many corrupt things about the prison system that we could get into. Are there any aspects of it, though, that you feel like are righteous punishment? Well, I mean, the the aspect of being separated from your family is some aspect of righteous punishment. But when you take away the thought process of rehabilitation, restoration, and correction, then it's more punishment than righteous um, correction. Um, Mm. I think our criminal legal system got away from what it was created for in the 1970s. And so now it's just about incapacitation. It's about um, attempts at deterrence and retribution. So it's really just about punishment. You know, that's why, you know, we have 2.3 million people incarcerated. So the United States has 5% of the world's population but 25% of the world's prison population. Mm. That's wow. mind-blowing. That's, that's, that's 25%. crazy. 25%. That's crazy. One more thing about, about prison that we want to ask is, like, um, what are your thoughts on certain things such as, like, the death penalty or being on death row? And um, do you think that the death penalty or, or things like that are, are good forms of punishment? And do you think that they give people time to change? Well, I, I, me personally, you know, I would cap all sentences at 20 years. So I would do away with the death penalty. I would do away with life without parole, life sentences. Um, when we think about grace, how can we kill somebody and still say we believe in grace and mm-hmm. mercy, you know? Um, because grace is unmerited favor. It's giving you something that they don't deserve. I think of everybody, you know, we all are Barabbas. So Barabbas was the person who was supposed to die. But Pontius Pilate released him and put Jesus in his stead. So sin caused us all to have that death sentence. And we're all guilty to be put to death. But because of Jesus taking our place, we were spared that death. So thinking about it in that way, you know, how can we as a society judge somebody and tell them that they're worthy of death when Jesus said we weren't worthy of death and wanted to forgive us, you know, and sent Jesus um do and and then when you think about that you know you're when we say that uh, somebody is going to be put to death we're snubbing out their potential Mm. we don't know the impact that they can have after their potential death you know Mm. um just think about Just think about my life, you know. Really, I could have been given the death penalty. Say I received the death penalty. I was killed before I got out of prison. I wouldn't have spoken in 60 universities. I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have a son. I wouldn't have been able to see women and men who have come up to me after I've spoken and have told me, that me being so open about my own sexual abuse that I experienced that they now could talk about their own abuse. Mm. And so I was able to be a catalyst for their healing to begin. So just look at that, you know, like, wow, you know, my potential wasn't snubbed out because I wasn't put to death. Um, in conversation with different people about this, you know, the severity of crime, you know, would 
potentially cause somebody to maybe be locked up longer than 20 years if they haven't shown that they've been rehabilitated Mm. and are changing, you know? And really, everybody has the innate ability to change. It's just if they want to, you know? And what is happening to help that change take place? That's beautiful. And it's, I love that you shared that because so many Christians would take the complete opposite perspective. A lot of, excuse me, conservative leaning Christians who say that people don't change or whatever. And I think that is completely contradictory to the gospel. Yeah. And I mean, I worked with the population that society never wants to deal with. They are our modern day lepers. So I worked with people who've committed sexual offenses for three years. Now, if you had told me when I went to school that I would get a job when I graduated and work with this population, I would have been like, you are crazy. (laughs) But it's just the way that God had ordained this part of my life, you know, and I was working for a Christian reentry home here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania called New Person Ministries. And the the ministries is based on Second Corinthians five seventeen that says, Therefore if any if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Mm-hmm. And really that is how I looked at these men. I didn't look at them as the term that society wants us to look at them as a sex offender, but I looked at them as a person who was convicted of a sexual offense. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, you know, it allowed me to get into this work on a bigger national level. And there's not many people with my type of story who have taken the life of their abuser who now advocate for this population. But I advocate for these men and women who are on the registry because I see that they change. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of individuals who have gone to prison for these offenses, who have come out and who have never committed another offense uh, again. But there's this list that they're now on that is saying this is who they are. They're never going to change. And it's sad that they are going to be labeled with this red S saying that this is who they are. Mm. So you've experienced firsthand those like 180 changes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you look at data, you know, everybody, I I always tell people, you know, when we talk about issues, you know, you need stories, but you also need data. When you look at data, people who have been convicted of a sexual offense have the lowest rate of committing another sexual offense out there. It's 1.5 to 5.5%. Most of your sexual offenses are happening by people who have never been convicted of a sexual offense or been arrested. And these are school teacher or the local youth pastor or the person that lives down the street. Mm -hmm. And it's not happening by strangers either. These are people that the person is intimate and knows. Yeah, I know they say that you're more likely to experience that with someone you know rather than a stranger. That's interesting because when you said those percentages, I was like, there's definitely way more people repetitively committing those crimes. But to know that it's people who haven't been in prison, like they're just doing it in their private life, that makes sense. And and as to ask just a small small question on the side, due to your past as a child and and having what happened to you happen to you, did you find it really hard to advocate for the people who had committed those sexual crimes at first? Or was it a thing where you had to kind of turn around and, you felt grace as soon as you started doing it. Um, it was a lot about just the grace, you know, and Brian Stevenson, who is a world-renowned lawyer who started Equal Justice Initiative and worked and helped my brother and me, he has a quote that says, you're not as bad as worst thing you've ever done. Hmm. So really, it's a combination of the grace, the mercy, forgiveness, and then also that quote, you know, because uh, can you imagine if, People judged you every day by the worst thing you've ever done. Mm. Imagine if you had to walk around with a T-shirt that said liar, thief, um, gambler, smoker, 
cheater, whatever you've done. Could, could you imagine what that would be like? And that's what I, I did. You know, I didn't look at them as the worst thing. Now, there were times where they would have to tell me what offense that they committed. And at times that would grieve my my heart because of the harm that that person who was abused experienced. But then immediately I'd be like, okay, grace. They deserve God's grace. They deserve God's mercy. I'm not the person who can judge them. And so that's what allowed me to do the work, you know, and these I was actually able to help a lot of these men because people who have committed a, a sexual offense, most of the times they're not able to talk to the person that they've harmed. So I was able to help them heal because here they were able to talk to me, a victim by proxy, and they were able to have this dialogue with me where they were able to forgive themselves for what they did, but also they asked me to forgive them and they received a type of forgiveness for what that they, what they've did to get them to be sent to prison. Mm. Oh, wow. That's an, and the forgiveness aspect just goes back to that same verse we said at the beginning of, of the episode today. Uh, I think personally, I live by forgiveness. I think forgiveness is an amazing thing that sets not just, of course, that person free, but you free as well. And to have to be able to have those experiences with those people is really a great thing. It, it, it's great. It's yeah. really amazing. And was it difficult to forgive yourself? Because ultimately you said that it was wrong of you to take his life, but like obviously it's understandable why it happened. But has the process of forgiving yourself been difficult? Um, I wouldn't say the aspect of forgiving myself for committing the murder was that difficult. You know, it, it was a process. I, I think one of the things that was difficult for me was forgiving myself for blaming myself for the sexual abuse. Right. Okay. Mm. Because a lot of times people who are sexually abused, they blame themselves for the abuse, thinking they did something that caused this to happen to them. And so it was there in this behavior modification program where I was reading this uh, self-help book. And in it, it was talking about blaming yourself. And so I was able to have this aha moment with myself and have this conversation with 11-year-old David and tell him it wasn't your fault. Mm -hmm. And that was just so powerful. And that was one of the things that helped me take the mask off, you know, because I was able to forgive myself no longer. I, I, I no longer had to carry around this shame or this blame that I did something wrong. I was able to tra transverse it to the individual who had committed the sexual abuse against my brother and me. And so that was very powerful. And uh, it, it helped me live in that freedom uh, emotionally and mentally. As for uh, kind of as we're coming towards the end, I found a question. What experiences that you experienced while you were a child and in prison led to the opportunities that you now have in your life. Yeah. Talk about just mercy. Um, <laughs> so yes, I, I was able to be in the movie, just mercy. Um, that was an incredible opportunity. Um, as I said, Brian Stevenson is the founder of equal justice initiative and a lot of the work that they've done, uh, when they began was around wrongful convictions and so one of their first clients was a gentleman named Walter McMillan. And Brian Stevenson wrote a book about it called Just Mercy. And it became a movie in, um, it came out in 2020. So I got a call from Brian Stevenson in 2018. It was August 2018. And he's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, I'm doing good. He's like, do you want to be in a movie? <laughs> I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, is that a question you actually have to ask somebody? Right. It's like, sign me up. Tell me where I need to be, what I need to yes. wear, how I need my hair. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think it was like a week later or two weeks later, I fly down to Atlanta um, for the filming. And Brian Stevenson is always about changing the narrative and being proximate. And so there were four roles in this movie in Just Mercy 
that were supposed to be just four incarcerated individuals. And so Brian Stevenson wanted four of his clients to play these roles because we had the lived experience. We have been in prison. We wore these uniforms. We ate the prison food for however many years, and we experienced it. So he wanted four of his clients to play those roles. So I was one of the four clients that was chosen. Mm. And we went when we went to the set, we were watching Michael B. Jordan and Rob Morgan go through their scene. And we were told that each one of us was going to share our own story for about 18 to 20 minutes. And they were going to take parts of our own story and put it into the movie. That was something that was so powerful. The fact that we weren't having scripted lines, but that parts of our own story are embedded in that movie That's was huge. so incredible. Do you feel like the movie was an accurate depiction of the prison system? Um, <clears throat> yes, I, I think it was. You know, for the the time that could be spent on the movie. Uh, I mean, if you've never read the book Just Mercy and you've just seen the movie, stop what you're doing, go buy the book and read it. It is so powerful. And <clears throat> one thing that's amazing about it is that Brian is an amazing storyteller and he tells the story of Walter McMillian, but he also tells a story of other clients he has and their struggles, their heartaches and what traumas they've experienced that led them to prison, you know? And one thing I always love talking about is uh, people talk about the school to prison pipeline all day long, but really the pipeline we need to be talking about is the trauma to prison pipeline because so many individuals have experienced adverse childhood experiences before they've committed an offense and go to prison. And really, we need to have that conversation when somebody's arrested. Like, where did society fail? <clears throat> what individuals weren't in your life to help you? And how can we? help you where we don't have to send you away to prison for the rest of your life with my brother and me we scored 10 out of 10 on the aces test so uh in plain vernacular we grew up in a very dysfunctional home right i mean to the max and so if there were other things in place to help us you know things could have been different mm as we're coming to like an end here and kind of trying to wrap this up, uh, I just want to ask you one last thing. If there's one thing that you think you can say or one, one bit of advice to someone who maybe is that person who just came out and is kind of lost, you know, or, or a person who is struggling with the same things you were struggling as a child, what do you think is something that you could, a word you could give to someone? Somebody that's coming out of prison. Um, I'd say that, it is important for there to be a village in place. So we all know the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. My spin on that is it takes a village for a returning citizen to be successful. Mm. So somebody coming home from prison, it takes their family, it takes community, it takes a place of faith, it takes employers, it takes support groups, it takes all of these different individuals coming around this person and just walking with them, speaking life into them, believing in them, and letting them know that they can do whatever they put their mind to. If it's somebody who has experienced sexual abuse, physical abuse, sexual assault, anything like that, the number one thing is to tell somebody. Mm. Um, Yes, it's scary. Yes, you have to be vulnerable. But that is the first step in healing. You have to tell somebody. I mean, when I confessed to the crime, that was such a powerful experience because I was finally able to release everything. I was finally able to tell somebody what had engulfed my life for the past eight years or eight years, four months. I was able to tell somebody about what my brother and I did, and I no longer had to live in silence. I know I no longer had to wear these masks mm. to hide behind. And it's so powerful 
when people are able to release that, you know, it's kind of like when we come to Jesus, you know, and we confess our sins and we just leave everything at the altar. Mm. Beautifully Amen, said. Man. That's, this is such a good great. conversation and it just, it's like theology. It's like you get one question answered and then five more pop up. Like I want to know how you <laughs> met your wife and like life afterwards. Like it's just so good. Um, but I'm sure you've been on a ton of other podcasts and live shows, and I'm sure you've been like guest speaker, of course, at different universities. So where can people find some of your past speeches and your social medias? Um, so I'm on Twitter and Facebook at David Lee Garlock, G-A-R-L-O-C-K. Um, also, same thing on LinkedIn. Um, you can look at YouTube for some of the presentations I've done. Uh, my TEDx is on there. It's called Beyond the Mask, it's Overcoming really Abuse it. and it's Trauma. Great. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap up. Yeah. We hit an hour. Yeah. We're going to wrap up now. So um, thank you again, Mr. Thank Garlock. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much. This we was really a, appreciate your This was a very, uh, very eye-opening experience and a very eye-opening conversation that we had here today. Uh, we really appreciate your transparency here. And uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And I feel honored to be the first guest that you guys have and probably the first extroverted guest, you know. So, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Isn't it crazy? Our first guest is like this big. It's extroverted. He's an an extrovert. He's an extrovert, too. (laughs) All right, guys. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, thank you guys. Have a blessed week. Have a good one. Bye, homebodies. Thank you.